Throw that picture up on the screen for me, Josh. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, you're from Oklahoma. It's a storm shelter. What's funny is how people from around the country have no idea what that is. That's just always amazing to us. Wanda and I have had a lot of family who have come through. And you know what's hilarious is they all want pictures inside our storm shelter. You know, like this is some kind of exotic guest home or something, you know. And uh, they, they all do. I kid you not, don't they, Wanda? I mean, they all want to get down in it with the door open and they want to, they you know. How many of you have a storm shelter at your house? Okay, get this. About a month ago, you remember when we had that, um, we, you know, we've been kind of fortunate with, with tornadoes lately. But you remember they had that threatening day or two where they were saying we had a like, you know, fairly likely chance? Well, I don't know what your procedures are, but my wife is like the ultimate Boy Scout, and uh, she is extremely organized. She has all of our shelter stuff in uh, containers, plastic containers with lids. And uh, on, on threatening days, the night before, we've got all of those things lined up and we start putting them down in the shelter. Now, I don't know if you're like this or your family's like this, but the longer we live, the more things that become sacred to Wanda. And, you know, it used to just be, you know, our tax forms and critical information. Then it started being photo albums. Then it started being coin collections. Then it started being, oh, you know, I can't live without these things either. And, oh, yeah, we may be in there for days, so let's get lanterns and five-gallon jugs of water. And, and you know, we got to put all the and, and the more stuff we put in there, you know, the fewer people you can get in. And it's like when we built this thing, I mean, that storm shelter is like probably like an eight-foot square or something. I mean, it's fairly sizey. And when Wanda asked the guy when, when they were putting it in, you know, how many people can you get in there? And the guy said, well, it depends on how big the storm is. You know, the bigger the storm, the more people you can crowd into it. But the more stuff we've had, now we have so much stuff in there. If we do have to go to the storm shelter, Wanda and I toss a coin to see which one of us get to go in with our stuff. And sometimes, somehow, she magically wins that. I'm not sure how that works. But when we were doing that last month, we were getting everything down in there the night before. And uh, when we got everything in, uh, you know, we, we said, okay, well, let's go ahead and just, you know, close it up. And we, we won't lock it, lock it, but we'll put, at least put the lock on it. So I, I, I shut the big metal door, but it wouldn't latch. And I thought, oh, no, what do we do? And so I, you know, I did it again. And, you know, I'm, I'm a guy, so it's kind of like if it doesn't do it, you know, when you do it this way, do it harder, you know, and harder. And it, just, it still wouldn't, it still, I still couldn't get it latched. And I thought, oh, it's Wanda, we, we, we messed the latch up. And I'm looking at the latch, trying to figure out what we did wrong. And I go in and get the pliers, and I'm trying to bend the latch. And I'm trying, because I said it won't go down all the way. It's got it's to stick. And, I mean, I'm messing with this thing and messing with this thing. And it's like, what good is a storm shelter if you just get in it and you can't close the door or you can't, you know, won't lock. I mean, you can get, you know, get sucked right out of that thing, you know. So we're trying to figure out what's going on. And so finally, Wanda says, well, let me see what's going on. She goes, let me get in the storm shelter and then you close the door and I can look at the latch. Now, I got to be honest with you. <laughs> there was a thought that crossed my mind, you know, that. But I didn't. I didn't yield to that temptation. So she got in. She got in, and I closed the door, and, um, and she's looking at it. And I said, now, what's going on? And I'm moving the lever up and down trying to get it closed. She goes, Steve, it's not the lever. Everything looks good. It's not, it's not the lever. It's just not closing. She goes, I, I look up on top. She goes, it looks like there's some light coming through or something up, up on top. So I, I open the door, and I'm looking around the edge of this metal door. And you know what was keeping this door from closing? This, throw that picture up on the screen. A teeny 
tiny rock had somehow fallen down off the top of the shelter and there is a, a metal ledge that kind of goes all the way around where that door seals and this rock had fallen down on the top and this little tiny piece of nothing was keeping us from being safe. And I thought, that's crazy. I mean, we had, you know, we had everything valuable to us. We had everything, but it was all exposed because one little thing got in the way. What's your one little thing? We've been in this series ask, you know, asking, looking at this, this phrase, one thing, and we've been talking about what's that one thing for us, looking at it from a lot of different parts of life. And here's the question I'm going to ask you today. What's the one thing that's holding you back? The one thing holding you back from fully embracing God and all that he has to offer you in your life. What's the one thing? Ready to look at the scripture? Let's go to it. If you want to pull your sermon outline, you can track along with me. We want to look at Mark chapter 10. In there, there's a story of this guy who comes to Jesus, and he, he, he pleads with Jesus. He says, what do, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? Man, I'm hearing you talk about the kingdom of God, and I want all of that, so what do I got to do? And Jesus said, well, you know, you know the commandments. You grew up in the church. And he, and he starts listening to the commandments. You don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, you know, don't covet, don't, you know, don't do these things. And the guy says, you know what? I've done all of that since I was a kid. You know, he's happy, he's excited. And then Jesus says to him, read it with me there in your outline. I'll read it. You follow along with me. He says, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. He said, there's still one thing you haven't done. He told him, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And at this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. This guy wanted everything that Jesus had to offer, but there was just one thing getting in the way of that. Look at me. What's your one thing? What's your one thing? Now, I, I sat back this week when I was working on this, and I thought, how, how do I want to approach this? And I started thinking of these questions that, that were really good, penetrating questions to my heart. And I want to ask them to you as a way of just evaluating where you might find your one thing. Are you ready? Here we go. Four questions to help you give God your all. Here's the first one. What do you have in your life that you love more than God? What do you have in your life that you love more than God? You do know that what God wants first and most is your heart, right? What God really wants from you is your love. In fact, look at the passage of Scripture there from Matthew 22. A man came to Jesus and he said, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, read it out loud with me, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. You know what's interesting in that story? If you go back and look at the story of the, of the rich guy who came to Jesus, when Jesus said, you know the commandments, if you look at it, what's interesting is Jesus only quoted six of the 10 commandments. 
And the six commandments that he quoted all had to do with the social laws between people. The four commandments that Jesus omitted had to do with our our relationship directly with God. And what Jesus was getting at is that, you know what, you're a good old boy. Yeah, you treat people right, but you know what, God is not your first love. Now, I, I, I thought about that this week, and I thought about in my own journey of faith, how through the years, little things can begin to slip in to really replace our relationship with God, or at least take a higher priority. Now, just come on, just stay with me for a second. Do you remember, if you committed your life to Christ, do you remember when you first did that? Do you remember the first time you invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Do you remember when you, when you felt his presence? Do you remember when you felt free and forgiven? Do you remember how, when you, when you experienced that, how you used to worship him? Do you remember the eagerness that you came when you sat down and, and read the Bible? Do you remember the excitement that you had when you came to worship and you actually got to sing and praise? Now, can we just be honest? What happens to us so often was the fact that, you know, we got, we, we, we get other things going and we just lose that first love. Come on, it's just us. I'm your pastor, be honest. When you got up this morning, were you really excited about coming to worship? Or were you, oh, good Lord, it's morning already, you know? When you got in your car and you were driving here, did you begin to think about this was Father's Day and this is going to be your opportunity to love on your Heavenly Father? When, when, you, were, when you were making your way here, did, did, did you rattle that verse around in your brain that where two or three gather together in my name, I am there in their midst, and, and you knew that the presence of God was going to be here? Did, did you come in with that kind of passion and that kind of expectation, or come on, or were you just going to church? You see, that's where that love begins to fade away. I, I love James Emery White is a, um, a pastor in the South, and uh, I love he blogs, and I, I love reading his blog and the thoughts that he has. And he, he wrote this a few years ago, and I just thought this was so cool. He was, he was reflecting on a visit that he did to the Soviet Union after the wall came down and the fall of communism, and, and churches were actually be, beginning to be able to meet publicly again. And he was, he was there with a few others to speak to pastors and do a few different things. And here's what he said. He said, one night, a group of us went out to the famed Bolshe Ballet. He said, it was a long, wonderful evening. And after we took the subway back to where we were staying, the students that we were with from Russia said, come, let us celebrate. And he said, the other two professors with me were as tired as I was, but the students seemed so intent on us joining him, so we did. And then we found out what the celebration, what that meant to them. They wanted to gather in the dining hall and sing hymns and worship God. And we did, late into the night, with more passion and sincerity than I've ever experienced. He goes, it didn't matter that we didn't know how to sing in Russian. We worshiped God together. And he goes, and I went to bed that night puzzled. He goes, I'd never seen such a passion for spontaneous and heartfelt worship. He goes, I was curious as to why they were so ready and eager to worship like that and to offer God love and honor. He goes, I received my answer the following Sunday when I was invited to speak at a church in North Moscow. 
He was formerly an underground church that met in secret, so many churches had done, and now they were meeting openly in a schoolhouse. He goes, I had, been, I had been asked to bring the message that Sunday morning. He goes, I didn't know that I was in for a long wait. He said, the service lasted for three hours. He said, there were three sermons and three different speakers with long periods of worship in between each message. He goes, I was to go last. He said, when it was over, I talked a bit with the pastor of the church. He said, I was surprised, not only at the length of the service, he said, but the spirit and the energy of the people. He goes, throughout the entire three hours, they never let up. In spite of the length of time, they never seemed to tire. And in the end, they didn't seem to want to go home. In the States, I told the pastor, you're doing well to go a single hour before everybody's looking at their watch and wondering when it's all going to be over. He said, then the pastor said something I'll never forget. He said, the pastor said, it was only a few years ago when we would have been put in prison for doing what we did today. We were never allowed to gather together as a community of faith and to offer worship to God. And we are just so happy, almost in a state of unbelief, that we can do this now publicly together, that we don't want it to end. And not knowing what the future might hold for us here, we know that every week might be our last. So we never want to stop. We just keep one worshiping together as long as we can. He said, as I left, his words never left my mind. I thought to myself, I will never think about worship the same again. I've been too casual about it, too laid back, taken too much for granted. These people know what it's all about, really about, and because of that, they have been willing and would be willing again to suffer for it, to be imprisoned for it, to die for it, because they've discovered that it holds that high of a yield for their life. It has that much meaning and payoff and significance. It matters that much, and it should matter that much to all of us. Amen? And, and that was one, I, I was thinking about that, about how, how easy it is to, to say, I love God with all my heart, but just honestly, between you and me, are there things that have made its way in that maybe you're starting to love a little more than you even love him? That's that one thing. Another one thing might be, another question we can ask is, so what area of obedience have you withheld? What area of obedience have you withheld? James says that to, to him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And I, I begin to think about, for some of us, there are things that we know we should do as a part of the Christian faith, some things that we should do in relationship to, to our, our walk with God. But can we be honest? Some of us just don't do like what? Well, let me give you three that I've experienced through the years as, as a pastor. One is giving. One is giving. Now, relax when I talk about giving. Relax. Can I just be honest? I don't work on commission, okay? So I don't get a higher cut if you give or don't give. It doesn't work that way. But the Bible is so clear that everything we have comes from God. Every single thing. And what God says in his word is that we need to recognize that by setting aside the, at least the first tenth of all that we have, or the first tenth of our income, and giving that back to the causes of God. That's all he asks. Everything is his, but he only asks back 10%. But do you understand how hard that is for so many of us to do? 
We're, we're like the rich young ruler, even though we might not think ourselves rich. We, we cling to what we have with both hands, and we have a hard time sometimes letting it go to God. Um, so interesting, Martin Luther said many years ago, he said, you know what, the, a man's wallet is usually the last part of him to be converted. <laughs> and I think, I think there's some real truth to that. How about serving? Serving is sometimes an area of obedience that we shy away from. I mean, look at me. I want you to hear my heart with this. If you're a Christ follower, if you've invited Jesus Christ into your life and his spirit truly does live in you, then here's what you need to understand. You are just as gifted and you are just as called to ministry as I am. Amen. Now, that means all of us. Look what the passage of Scripture says. Look at what, look at what uh, Paul says uh, right here in, in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, now here is what I'm trying to say. Read it out loud with me. All of you together are the one body of Christ, and each one of you is a separate and necessary part of it. Some of you are familiar with the Pareto Principle, which is, talks about the 20% of what you do gives you 80% of the, of the return for your effort. And we talk about how that, that statistic is so true all through organizations. And it's true in churches. You know, in churches, in, in most churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people fill 80% of the roles, um, go to any potluck dinner, and 20% of the people eat 80% of the food. You know, it just, it just always works, kind of, kind of works across like that. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. If you're a Christ follower, God has gifted and called you to ministry. So where are you serving? Can I give you another one? And this is the hardest one, I think, for all of us. Witnessing. Witnessing. The words of Jesus from Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Read it out loud. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Just a question, just a question, but think this thought with me. When's the last time you shared with anyone else what God has done for you? When's the last time you shared your God story with someone who needs a God story of their own? Now, what's happened for so many of us is we've become so paranoid about not forcing our faith on other people, that we've stopped talking about our faith altogether. But you do understand we are the only link to this world that God has. I'll never forget in, uh, in Pennsylvania when I had taken a church that was meeting in a Sheraton hotel. And um, after about a year and a half, we, we were able to buy a, a church building from a church that had been in this location since like 1943, and they had grown very small, and they finally decided to sell their building. And so we bought this little country-style church right in the heart of town, and we were going to open up on, on Easter Sunday there. And on Palm Sunday weekend, we went around to about 250 homes. It wasn't a, it wasn't a big mass marketing thing. But this is back in the day. Now, this is back in the late 80s. And uh, this is when people still used f telephone directories. And we had these laminated phone book covers that had our church name on it. We went to 250 homes right around the church. We walked up and we knocked on the door and we said, Hi, I'm from Laurel Highlands Church of God. And uh, we're moving in down the street in this little building down here. And we just wanted to stop by and tell you we're going to be your new neighbors if there is 
there's ever any way that we can be of service to you, please let us know. That's why we're here, to serve our community. Here's a little gift. It's a laminated phone book cover. It's one way we just want to say hi and let you know we want to be good neighbors. And by the way, if you don't attend church anywhere, we'd love to have you come. That was all. No big, no big high pressure. Giving a gift, saying if you don't attend church, feel free to come. Never forget, family right next door, the Dwyer family. Um, that we gave those playbook cards. They came that, that next week on Easter Sunday. And, uh, and during Sunday school, about oh, some few months later, their little uh, five- or six-year-old daughter named Mylena uh, committed her life to Christ. That fall, their teenage son, uh, Tony, committed his life to Christ. Uh, sometime during that next that first rest of those months, um, the mother, Diana, committed her life to Christ. And I'll never forget, exactly one year later on Easter Sunday, big Jim, big old guy, uh, came to the altar and he committed his life to Christ. Won the entire family to the Lord. It was so exciting. A few months after that, I, was, I came out of the office one day. And Jim and Diana were sitting on their porch drinking coffee. And um, I, I walked over and I got a cup of coffee and I was just sitting there talking with them. And I said, hey, I got to ask you guys this. I mean, this church had been here since 1943. And you guys have lived next door to it for how many years? You know, years and years. I said, why did you never go to this church before? You know, why didn't you ever, why didn't you ever come? And you know what they said to me? I'll never forget it. Nobody ever invited us. Nobody ever invited us. Let that sink in for a second. 75 to 90% of the people who come to church come because a friend, relative, or neighbor invites them. Jesus said, you are my witnesses. If we don't do it, it doesn't get done. What's the one thing, the one area of obedience that maybe you haven't followed Christ in doing? Maybe that's your one thing. Can I give you another one? What stronghold of sin have you yet to yield? What stronghold of sin have you yet to yield? Look at me. Hear my heart with this. Sin usually starts out as a little thing, but it wants to consume more and more. Here's where we make the mistake. Jesus said, I've come, that the enemy comes to do three things, kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And so he takes a little thing and tries to build it into a big thing, which is why we need to take care of disobedience and sin at a small estate. I saw a great example of this in, in the news last week. Throw, throw that picture up on the screen. That little cutie right there on the left, that's Elena and, uh, and her brother Hayden. They were, uh, they were playing in the kitchen. Their, their parents are both nurses, and their dad had just gotten off. Chad had just gotten off a 12-hour shift, and they were excited to, to see him. And it was on a Saturday morning, and they were, they were excited, and the kids were fawning all over their dad. And um, they were trying to outdo each other in getting stuff for dad. And they grabbed a glass. They were going to get him some orange juice. And they, they grabbed a glass, and Hayden and Elena started fighting over the glass. And when Elena yanked it out of Hayden's hand, the, the, she kind of bumped her arm on the, on the door frame and knocked the glass loose. And she grabbed it, clutched it, and pulled it back to her chest real quick. And when she did, the glass shattered against her chest. And Chad, the father, said, freeze. And her and, and Hayden just stood there. He, all the glass was now falling onto the floor. And so they, they helped the kids, kind of, kind of got them away from the glass, and they began to, to clean it up. And um, 
So then the mother, Megan, started checking Elena over and said, are you hurt, honey? She goes, no, I don't, I don't think so, Mama. And she looked, and there was just this little spot of red right here on her chest. And she said, are you bleeding? She said, no, Mom, I think that's cranberry juice. And her mom said, we didn't have cranberry juice this morning, honey. And so they got closer, and sure enough, it was a, it was a drop of blood, but it wasn't bleeding anymore, and so they, they seemed to be fine. And uh, so they got the glass, were cleaning the glass up, and they let the kids go and play, and everything seemed to be fine. But Megan, there was something that troubled Megan. And she got all the glass together, and she started piecing that glass back together, and she realized there's a piece of this thing missing. And so she brought Elena in again, and she said, honey, are you sure you're okay? And she said, I'm fine, mama. She goes, I'm just having a little bit of a hard time breathing sometimes. And immediately, they got her in the car, they rushed her to the hospital. And when they got in and they began to, to do the test, what they discovered was that she actually had um, a, 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 a punctured lung. She actually had a, a lung that had collapsed and she had uh, air filling her chest cavity and it was getting more and more difficult for her to breathe and they immediately began to get the air out. They inflated the lung and they thought everything was fine and we said, okay, we think we got her all back together. But Megan goes, you know what? I'm, I'm still not convinced. And they began to do a check and you know what they found? They found this piece of glass. Throw that next picture up. That's the picture of, of Elena in the hospital. There you go. Throw that next picture up again. There's the piece of glass. What had happened is that glass had slipped in into her chest and, and kind of got up in there where it could have remained for a long period of time. And, and Elena could have went on playing and the parents could have went on playing and they wouldn't have known that every passing moment that they're growing this opportunity for something disaster happened was growing and growing. And I, when I, I read that story, I thought of this is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about little things making their ways into our life and how we don't realize how deadly they can become. Something so simple as just getting angry at someone. You know, we all get angry at someone. How many of you have gotten angry at someone? Yeah, this week. How many of you have gotten angry? Yeah, this morning. You're already, yeah, yeah. Walking into the sanctuary. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's a way of life. The Bible says we're two or three are gathered together, there will be a fight. You know, that's kind of, it doesn't say that, but it should. You know, it should say that. But, you know, we, we get angry, but here's the deal. It's not, it's not a sin to be angry. That's just a part of the human experience. But what do you do with that anger? Do you realize when you hold on to it, when you nurse it, when you tuck it away, when, when you refuse to face the anger, deal with the anger, or forgive the offense, do you, do you realize that what you're doing is making a place for the enemy in your life? That's what Paul says. Look at the passage of Scripture. Paul was writing to the Ephesians, and he said, if you're angry, don't sin by doing what? By nursing your, your grudge. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Get over it quickly. Why? Read it with me, church. For when you are angry, you give a mighty foothold to the devil. Now, let's be honest. Sometimes in our journey of faith, <coughs> we've developed things in our life. Sometimes they're habits. And we know the habit is not a godly thing. But sometimes it gets such a grip on it that we just kind of turn our heads away from it rather than face what's going on and deal with it as a stronghold. Sometimes that's our one thing. Let me give you one more. 
What attitudes are keeping you from looking like Christ? What attitudes are keeping you from looking like Christ? Paul, again, in Ephesians 4, has some strong words to us. Read it out loud with me. Now your attitudes and thoughts must all be constantly changing for the better. Yes, you must be a new and different person, holy and good. Clothe yourself with this new nature. There is a, uh, a gal by the name of Tam, uh, Tracy Miles who wrote a blog um, a while back. And she was talking about how she hit a stretch of life where it just seemed like everything was going wrong. Um, car broke down, her refrigerator went, you know, went on the fritz and, and just kind of seemed like thing after thing went wrong. And she said, you know what I discovered? She goes, I found myself just growing more and more discouraged, more and more cynical. Act frankly, she said, more and more angry at God. It's like, why is all this stuff happening to me? And she said, I just, I just developed this negativity that kind of began to spill out in every area of my life. She said, then one morning, she goes, I'm, I'm, I'm reading in my Bible. And she goes, and I read this verse in James, count it all joy. Count it in all joy when you run into various kinds of problems. And she goes, okay, God, this is stupid. You know, who, who has joy when this kind of stuff is going on? My car broke down. Running short on money. My fridge broke down. Who can have joy in the midst of this? And, and she said, I started thinking about that challenge for my life. And she started, then I started getting really feeling guilty because I realized my attitude's my choice. You know, I can't control the things that go on around me, but I, I can control how I respond to that. And she said, then it hit me. It hit me who James was writing that passage to. See, these people James were writing to weren't people who were worried about refrigerators breaking down or cars breaking down. These were people who were being persecuted for their faith. People whose families were being separated. People who were, were, were being uh, killed for choosing to be Christ followers. And as they were watching friends and family and all of this go on, J James was saying, count it all joy. Count it all joy. In other words, the world is going to come after you. The world will do everything it can against you, but you get to choose how you respond. James says, choose joy. And Tracy said, that was the day I realized that the most ungod, ungodly, unchristlike part of my life had to do with my attitude. And that was something completely inside of my control and she said it was there that morning that I bowed my head and I said God after you've done so much for me I have nothing to complain about in my life take from me this attitude of negativity take from me this cloud of despair put in its place the attitude of joy Jesus looked at this young man that day. The Bible says he loved him. 
And he really wanted this guy to, to be a fully sold out follower of his. And so he says to him, you know, man, you're, you're close. You're really close. There's one thing you lack. I need to be first in your life. I need to be above all other things. And that held that one man back. What's your one thing? Maybe your love for God has kind of waned and slipped away and maybe you need to reclaim that love. Maybe it's that one area of obedience that you know you, you're not following, that one area that you know you should, but yeah, I've just made a hundred reasons why I'm not. Or maybe you've got that stronghold going on. Maybe there's a place that maybe you've even talked to God about it before, but it's still there and you, you've kind of walked away from it. Maybe today what you need to do is say, no, Lord, I, I need this stronghold to come down. Or maybe it's your attitude. Today, I want us to respond to that challenge of Christ. What's your one thing? Today, will you give that to him? Rachel's going to lead us in this song, and then I want to lead us in a prayer. And I just want this to be your personal time of worship for just a couple of minutes. And whatever that one thing is for you, I just want you to offer it to God. Would you do this for me? Would you just cup your hands and just put them in front of you like this? And in a moment, I, I want to pray, but what I want you to do is just hold your hands like that, and I, I just want you to put your one thing, whatever it is that's there between you and God that you know you need to set aside, and I want you to give it to him while I pray. Father, as we come to you, um, you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the one who loves us above all others. But Father, we have to confess to you that even though you call us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we allow other things to slip in and to, to take priority in our life. Sometimes it's other relationships. Sometimes it's other things we've got going on. But it's so easy to drift away from you. And Father, today, we, we put our one thing in our hands before you. Uh, that lack of love, that lack of obedience, that stronghold that we face, or that attitude that we know is not of you. And Lord, we, we lay it before you and we ask, God, would you take this from us? Would you remove this from our heart? You look at us just like you looked at that rich young ruler. Lord, we know you love us today. And so by your grace, would you just wrap your arms around us this morning? Would you remove this from our life? Would you take priority in our hearts and in our lives above all other things? Lord, I know that, um, that you wish that the story of the rich young ruler had been different. You didn't want him to leave. You didn't want him to walk away. You wanted him to embrace the abundant life But there was that one thing that just got in the way. Father, today we give you that one thing of our lives. And we commit ourselves wholly, fully, and completely to you. In the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen.